This is the Journal of American History podcast for March 2014. It's my pleasure to welcome today Susan Carruthers, who is professor of history at Rutgers University, Newark, and the author of Produce More Jopolos, John Hersey's A Bell for Adano and the Making of the Good Occupation, which will appear in the March 2014 issue of the Journal of American History. Susan, welcome, and thanks so much for doing this. Well, thank you very much for asking me. It's a real treat. In your conclusion, you write, A bell for Adano's accomplishment, singular but not solitary, was to naturalize a way of thinking about occupation without thinking of it as occupation. Going unnamed, occupation lost its oppressive weight and specific gravity. Americans could rest assured that they represented a force for good in the world, leaving only constitutions and parliaments, not occupying armies, as Bush put it in 2002, deriving luster from a phenomenon too uncomfortable to be called by name. Hersey's novel helped freeze occupation at the euphoric moment of liberation. What came next remains safely beyond the frame. When I read this, Susan, I thought about how influential books shape reality, the complicated story of occupation, the loaded term occupation, how the power of the master narrative of the good war extended to occupation. I mean, the conclusion just raises so many things. So introduce readers uh, sort of through thinking about this conclusion to your interests uh, in this in this whole story. Well, it's it's a good place to be in at the end because that takes me right back to the beginning. And how I first became interested in, in this topic was really thinking about the way in which history had been so insistently mobilized in the run-up to the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And of course, as anyone who remembers those six months before um, Operation Iraqi Freedom was launched will recall, uh, Bush administration personnel were, were repeatedly given to making analogies with the occupations of Germany and Japan after World War II. Now, they rarely actually used the word occupation, and indeed, some people were, were sort of given to joking about the unspeakability of, of the O word as it was jokingly referred to. Uh, but, but nevertheless, at the same time, they were very keen to extract uh, the available luster from the, the good occupations that, that followed the good war. And I was really curious about how that managed to work, how on the one hand, you could invoke history for ennobling purposes and reassure doubters that the invasion of Iraq would produce a similarly positive outcome, and yet still not really want to say that troublesome word itself. Now, at the time, I was working on, on a book called Cold War Captives, which is, is set in the late 1940s and early 1950s. So the, the post-war period is one that I'm very familiar with. Uh, but at the same time, I also 
was writing about the filmmaking that was coming out of, of the Iraq War. So this was around 2006. I started first working on what eventually would, would become this article. And, and I wanted to see how, how filmmakers back in 1945, in the early years of the occupation, themselves thought about and represented occupation. What struggles did they have with both the word itself and with how to conjure a positive set of associations with occupation. And that was really what took me back both to Abel Adano and to a series of other Hollywood films that were produced in the late 1940s that, that struggled with occupation. And that was how this project really began. That's fascinating. And uh, take us into uh, Hersey's work himself, what, what he was trying to do, uh, uh, the, the characters that are trying to help Americans make sense in a comfortable, digestible way, what, what occupation meant in the po- early post-war years. Well, Hersey, at the time that he wrote the novel, was a 29-year-old journalist he had achieved incredible celebrity during the war already. And I think it's probably worth bearing in mind that by the time he, he published Bell for Adano in early 1944, he already had two best-selling books to his name, both of which were more journalistic in character and both of which had won him a lot of acclaim. And he was also a reporter for Time and Life magazine. And so when the British and American forces invade Sicily in July of 1943, Percy is, is right there with them. And he goes ashore and he spends about a week observing the activities of one particular American major, um, a guy called Frank Toscani, as he tries to bring some semblance of, of order to a small Sicilian town called Licata. And Frank Toscani, in due course, becomes the model for Major Victor Joppolo in the novel. In the first instance, Hersey writes a long feature story in Life magazine, and it's illustrated with photographs by Robert Kappa. And he really sets out the various tribulations that he observes um, Frank Toscani, although he doesn't mention him by name in that article. Uh, But the tribulations that, that confront American officers as they're desperately trying to clear rubble from the streets, uh, find food for a desperately hungry population, get the boats out fishing again in in waters that have been mined, and to try to um, begin the work of um, bringing about some indigenous Sicilian governance to this town that has been newly swept clear of its fascists. So that's what what Hussey did in in brief in the Life magazine article. And then once he left Sicily, he came back um, and he spent just three weeks in North Carolina. He had with him pages from the diary that Frank Toscani had had taken notes in. And he also had a, a notebook in which he'd made his own observations. And using those materials, he then set about thinly fictionalizing what he'd observed in Sicily, and he turned that into the novel about Fredano. And for uh, listeners who may not be familiar with the novel itself, can you briefly take them through uh, the the plot and the very important characters representing good and evil of Victor Jopolo and then General Marvin? Yes. 
so the the hero is of course Major Victor Chapolo, and Hersey was very keen that, that readers would understand what manner of man that they were dealing with, because he wrote a rather didactic, well, incredibly didactic forward to the novel, in which he valorizes Major Chapolo, and he points out in particular that Chapolo that is is the son of hardworking. Um, working-class Sicilian immigrants. He is a quintessentially American immigrant type. His parents had emigrated from Sicily to the Bronx. They had lived in poverty, hard-working people, and their son, Major Victor Jopolo, in civilian life had been a sanitation worker in the Bronx who was obviously aspired to better himself and was eager to enlist to go back and fight the war against fascism in Europe. And, and Hersey is... is eager to tell readers that, that it's really because of his immigrant background, his cultural sensitivity, his ability to traverse the gap between the old world and new, that he is such an ideal avatar of American occupation. He understands what the Sicilians want and what they need. Um, and in particular, what he understands that they need is the eponymous bell for Adano. The church bell has been taken away by the fascists to be melted down for munitions. And Dropolo understands that while the townspeople of Adano need many things, they need food, they need order, they need to be able to live their lives free from the fear of, of being killed by bombs, by landmines. But more than anything else, they need tradition. They need everything that the bell symbolizes in the way of a simple religious faith and a civilizational um, belief in the church and everything it stands for. So, so uh, Drabolo is most insistent that quite apart from um, bringing order to town, he has to try to find them a new church bell. Now, along the way, of course, in this very moralistic fable, the good major is counterposed against the bad General Marvin. And it was very obvious to anyone who read the novel in 1944 that General Marvin was none other than General George Patton. Uh, many of the characteristics of General Marvin were directly transcribed from real life. And perhaps in particular, um, readers by 1944 had, had come to know things that still, when, when Hussey was writing this in 1943, had ne not yet been publicized. So famously in Sicily, Hersey, um, sorry, not Hersey, uh, Freudian <laughs> Patton had, had slapped a GI who was shell-shocked in a hospital, slapped him with such vehemence that his helmet liner had been knocked from his head, um, which caused some um, outcry, understandably, when, when this was publicized in America in, in early 1944. And he had also um, taken a dim view of Sicilian peasants who, in their slow-moving way, donkey-drawn carts were the main form of transport in the island, had, had become enraged on one occasion when a cart drawn by a donkey had been moving very slowly and had been slowing down the progress of, of Patton and his military convoy. And he was so incensed that this cart wouldn't get out of the way quick, quickly enough that he ordered his, his um, subordinate officers to shoot the mule. And that episode makes it um, in, in precisely rendered terms into the plot of a Belfordano. So Hersey's version of a pattern, General Marvin, orders 
that carts should be cleared from the roads. Um, now, Jobolo understands that without carts, the people of Adano won't be able to receive the drinking water that they need. They won't be able to get food supplies. So though initially he accepts that order, he quickly realizes that life will be unbearable, unlivable for the residents of Adano, and he countermands General Marvin's order. So that sets up one key element of, of, of tension in the plot between the bad General Marvin and the good Major Joppolo. And of course, in the end, necessarily, Marvin must win. Majors can't go around countermanding General's orders. So over the course of, of the novel, there is a good deal of um, ongoing tension as to when Joppolo's downfall downfall might occur. But ultimately, um, at the very final moment in the novel, just as, as Droppolo has succeeded in getting a new church bell installed, and as the bell chimes out for the first time, his orders are received that uh, send him packing, and he is sent away from Adano and off the island of Sicily to some form of unspoken punishment. So it's all very poignant, very melodramatic in, in the final reel where the bell rings out, but at the moment of victory, Joppolo must also be sent away. Mm, thank you. That's a wonderful summary. And and the reception of the book in the U.S. was uh, was really stunning. I mean, it's a, amazing to read your piece and think about uh, how it was received by uh, uh, book clubs and uh, the wider public, Albert Einstein writes that he, <laughs> he begins it at midnight and mm -hmm. you quote him, could not stop until five o'clock in the morning. Talk about, because uh, clearly this is a major interest of yours in the piece, the, the public reception that this novel spoke to something very, very important to Americans' understandings of who they were. Yes. Well, this was one of those particularly exciting discoveries as a historian to be reading through Hussey's mailbag, um, which is all carefully preserved with his papers at, at Yale. And I was reading letters from all sorts of people. A lot of, of teenagers read the novel and wrote him these effusive letters. All sorts of people were writing him to tell him how, how profoundly moved they were and how greatly appreciative they were of, of the novel. And in the midst of all these mash notes from 16-year-old girls, I come across this letter from Albert Einstein. So this was a very thrilling moment as, as a historian to, to be reading this um, and that he should have stayed up all night until 5 a.m. because he couldn't put a bell for Adano down. It was, was very um, endearing in a way, but also how thrilling to be a 29-year-old novelist getting fan mail from, from Albert Einstein. Uh, wow, it doesn't get much better than that. It would be a, um, nice, what, uh, a nice book blurb, wouldn't it? It certainly would. <laughs> but uh, funnily enough, that, that wasn't actually the blurb that his publish, publisher chose. But as I explained in the article, there was an, an organization that had uh, appeared during the war called the Council on Books in Wartime. And this was headed by William Warden Norton the W.W. Norton of, of publishing fame. And it brought together all the big figures in American literary publishing in the war with a view to promoting reading as a patriotic wartime experience. And they were behind this initiative to promote particular books as so-called imperatives. And by the time of Alfredano appeared in, in 1944, there had only been five such uh, 
valorized titles, and thus he had already been nominated as, as one of the earlier imperatives. So with this new imprimatur from the, the Council of Books on Wartime, they really gave the book um, an all-out um, push for publicity. So they produced special stands to display the book, and there's an illustration in, in the article of, of one such display stand with artwork. Um, they took out advertisements in newspapers. They had a special newsreel series, so Hersey appeared on one of those. They promoted short dramatizations of the novel on radio and film. So they made it um, more or less mandatory for the book-reading public in America to become familiar with this novel. And of course, quickly, Hollywood rushes to option it. There's a Broadway play, which is a smash hit. And in fact, the book was so popular and so popular in the, in the White House itself that a special version of the Broadway play is, is brought to Washington for the occasion of, of what would turn out to be FDR's last birthday in April of, of 1944. Um, so you can't really overstate just how popular a book this was and how familiar many Americans would have been, even if they hadn't read the novel with either the stage play, the dramatizations, or in 1945 with the Hollywood movie. And I think what it speaks to is this desperate yearning that the progressive purposes of the war should indeed be realized in the piece. Um, as, as I was thinking about World War II, I, I think it's easy to be misled by the way in which we've come to remember this as, as the good war, to imagine that, of course, everyone was thoroughly saturated with a sense of moral purpose during the war itself. And of course, that simply wasn't true. Uh, no one has perhaps written more convincingly about this than Paul Fussell in his book, Wartime. And certainly, as I've, I've moved forward with the, the larger project, of which this article is, is a piece, um, and I've read thousands and thousands of soldiers' letters, I'm, I'm often struck by the ways in which they express a sort of yearning to know what the war is about, or for reassurance that the war is actually about something that is indeed going to justify the colossal suffering and destruction that they've both witnessed and, and participated in. And and so I think that's what a Balfordano taps into, this desperate yearning for reassurance that the war is indeed going to produce a better world and that American military force can be part of a, a humanitarian venture of, of fashioning a world free from fascism um, in which democratization is assured, in which the four freedoms are realized, and that a, a progressive people's war yields a progressive people's peace. And I, and I think that's really the message that Hussey wanted to get across, and that millions of Americans obviously really responded to. You, your comments about the the need in in the face of uh, of this horror to make to make some sense of it reminds me of of Hannah Arendt's comment that without these kinds of redemptive meanings, uh, history becomes, uh, in her words, an unbearable sequence of sheer happenings, and and the novel certainly is is one way of addressing that. So uh, this this comforting and comfortable image uh, of occupation uh, certainly has some reality to it, but it's also, as you point out in the piece, much more complicated uh, 
than that given American memories of occupation of the American South, of the sensitivity of thinking about empire, about how uh, history of occupation has uh, written out of our memories uh, uh, issues of rape and venereal disease and prostitution and the black market. So uh, talk a, a little bit about uh, the, the more complicated realities of occupation and um, and our resistance to to thinking about those. Yes, well, Hussey uh, was obviously well aware that this was a hard sell. That um, just as Americans in, in 2003 were, were struggling with the O word uh, in in the war itself, of course, there were many deeply conflicted and hostile views towards occupation, an unwillingness to accept that occupation was in fact something that Americans have, have repeatedly done since there was a United States. And, and that was something that was intriguing to me, how it seems that with each successive occupation, there's um, this moment of, of, of epiphany when Americans, and particularly Americans in the military, say, ah, well, we actually do this rather regularly, and yet we never seem to train for it. There's no institutional memory of how we occupied previous places, even if there is actually a little more in reality than, than that repeated uh, enunciation of, of never having done it before might, might suggest. So there always seems to be this process of, of learning once again how one does occupation and a reluctance, I think, to grapple with the things that make occupation so difficult. Um, and one of the things that was interesting about about working with the Hersey papers at Yale was that unusually perhaps I, I got to see exactly what Hersey knew about occupation and what he chose to leave out because as I mentioned, he, he had the pages from Frank Toscani's notebook, which were full of, of many things that cast a much darker light on what was occurring in those early days of the occupation in Sicily than Hersey chose to put in the novel. Now, interestingly, in Toscani's notebook, there's never any mention of, of a church bell and the necessity to, to find a new church bell. And, and there are far more references in Toscani's notebook to things which are marginalized or, or almost lost over altogether in the novel. And, and sexual violence and, and rape are, are one such phenomenon, which was rife in Sicily and, 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 and even more rife in the occupation of, of southern Italy later on in, in 43 and 44. Um, anyone who, who may be familiar with, with other occupation memoirs or novels, perhaps John Horne Burns, the gallery most particularly set in Naples, will know that, that prostitution, rape, venereal deeds disease were, were the uh, leitmotifs of, of the occupation of, of southern Italy, as they would later be in Germany and as they would later be in Japan. And there's a very good book that, that um, Louise Roberts recently wrote about, about rape and sexual violence in, in occupied France. So rape, unfortunately, has been more or less a, a transhistorical constant of, of occupation. And Hersey absolutely minimized that. He, he also minimized, I think, all of the more squalid and exploitative characteristics um, that 
almost always the set occupation in, in any situation of, of scarcity. Of course, there are going to be exploitatively transactional interactions between the occupiers and the occupied as people are desperate to get food and will do anything to, to sustain their day-to-day existence. So the black market was another feature, very pronounced feature of, of the occupation of Italy and also later Germany and Japan. Um, but phenomenal amounts of, of, of military material are, are simply siphoned off in, into the black market. And, and Hussey has very little to say about that. And he similarly um, makes it seem incredibly easy to eliminate fascism. It turns out that in Adano, no one really seems to have been very fascist at all. And, and the one fascist character, the mayor, is rather easily chastened when he's called to task by Doppel and made to go and stand in the back of the, the bread line and, and, and so on. So one of the hardest features of any occupation, of course, was the work of political re-education. And that, too, seems, in fact, to be remarkably easily accomplished in, in Hersey's novel. And one of the things that I, I hadn't even really registered until I read the novel for the third or fourth time, because it's so densely packed with incident, is that the drama of the novel actually occurs over a period that lasts for no more than two weeks. And yet one would think reading it that this, this all surely had to be lasting over the course of, of months because so much happens in Adano. And, and yet Hersey has, has almost cheated a little bit perhaps by, by uh, truncating the life cycle of the occupation. So, so in a sense, to, to, to use a, a good or bad pun, Jobolo is saved by the bell. He's, he's sent away before the really hard work of occupation begins, when, when people who may indeed have welcomed their liberators start to feel the oppressive weight of, of occupation really bite. Susan, you write that um, to invoke empire was to scratch an especially meddlesome sore spot. Can you talk a bit about about this term and how it it haunts thoughts about and plans for occupation. Then also, I was really struck by how even the Civil War uh, haunts this this whole story. When you write military government over the Confederate South presented the greatest challenge to those in the business of reinventing occupation as a source of national pride and positive instruction lessons. Yes. Well, to, to, to begin with the larger empire question, of course, part of, well, the, perhaps the greatest part of, of the problem with the O word is that occupation and imperialism seem to be such kindred spirits or could very easily be. And of course, American national identity has been formulated around a rigorously anti-imperial self-understanding. That at the very heart of, of American identity constructions is a notion that this is necessarily an anti-imperial country that won its independence in a, a, an anti-colonial war against, against Britain, and that anti-imperialism has anchored a certain kind of valorous American self-understanding about how Americans engage other peoples. Of course, it's also been the site of, of tremendous political debates, particularly around the turn of the century, when America was indeed acquiring colonial possessions in the Pacific and the Caribbean. Um, and I think 
troubles around empire, desire to maintain that anti-imperial identity were, were absolutely integral to why thinking about post-war occupation in World War II was so very difficult. We see this in an ongoing debate that's waged within FDR's cabinet and beyond about who should actually be responsible for occupation. This is uh, an incredibly contentious debate. Should it be civilians? And of course, many of of FDR's um, civil departments want to claim that it should indeed be civilians who do this work. And the military saying, well, no, only, only we have the organizational infrastructure to be able to undertake um, the business of occupation in what will still be warlike conditions. And the, the sort of germ of imperialism is actually invoked by Harold Ickes in the cabinet debates, saying, well, it, you know, it shouldn't be the military who do this because the military have no notion of, of what it might mean to democratize a place. This is a profoundly undemocratic institution. So someone else ought to be vested with this mission of, of post-war democratization and the relief work that, that is concomitant with it. So imperialism is, is in part of, you know, a profound part of, of that debate about who even gets to be the occupation force at the end of World War II. So that, that's one piece of it. But moving on to your other question about the Civil War and memories of Reconstruction, that was something that, that I found particularly fascinating as I thought about why occupation was so troublesome. And of course, we, we've already talked about this idea that Americans have a real amnesia about occupation and insistence that they've never really occupied anywhere. Or of course, if they did, that the occupations were necessarily very virtuous humanitarian ventures. Now, in the South, of course, occupation has a very different connotation. And for many white Southerners, occupation necessarily conjured memories of the Civil War and its aftermath. And still in the 1940s, stories are, are told about the, the federal bayonets that are wielded over the South. And occupation has very, very bitter connotations of how the Yankees, the carpetbaggers treated the secessionist states during and after the Civil War. And memories of, of Reconstruction, I think, have, have long undergirded how Americans have thought about occupying other countries. That was certainly the case, as I, I briefly say in the article, after World War I. Woodrow Wilson himself, um, born in, in Virginia, uh, very much um, bought into the then prevalent notion that, that Reconstruction had been an abomination against the appropriate racial order of the South and, and was, was very insistent that, that Germany should be, should be given a, a good occupation, that it was the duty of occupiers to, to, to wield their power lightly because anything else risked putting in American troops in the same position as, as those federal forces in, in the radical Reconstruction era. So I was fascinated to see how uh, that understanding of Reconstruction as a terrible rewriting and upturning of the correct racial order of things still persisted into the 1940s in, in, in Southern, in white Southern memory. And of course, the fact that the, the American military in World War II establishes its school for military government, the, the place where officers are being trained to learn the arts of occupation is located at the University of, of Virginia in Charlottesville 
adds another element of piquancy to this story, that there are these officers training for this troublesome mission in Virginia, where memories of occupation are still very profound and very bitter. Now, on the other hand, of course, memories of Reconstruction amongst African-American Southerners have an altogether different cast. For them, occupation was a matter of, of betrayal. What potentially could have been a good occupation was ended far too soon and was never really adequately committed to politically. And one parallel that I, I, I only fleetingly have time in the article to point to, but an, another very powerful novel that was published almost in the same month as Abel Ferdano and that I think bears thinking about as a, a companion piece in a sense um, was Freedom Road, Howard Fast's novel of the Reconstruction era. And, and Howard Fast um, wrote this novel specifically with a view to, to recasting radical reconstruction as an occupation that could potentially have really set American race relations on on the right path, on a progressive path, but which regrettably was was ended far too soon and was was betrayed in its promise. And I, I came across when I was actually looking for, for Hersey materials um, in the Council on Books for wartime papers at Princeton, I came across a script of a, a radio interview that, that Howard Fast did about Freedom Road in which he, he says very expressly, well, I wrote this novel hoping to make a case for a prolonged occupation of Germany because if we learn, learned anything from radical reconstruction, what we should surely learn from that is the need to make an enduring political commitment to rooting out fascist elements and to building progressive forces and to staying as long as that work takes. And I thought it was very interesting that he, he was casting that, that moral, the same moral in a sense as, as Hussey's, but offering a parable around radical reconstruction. Susan, as you uh, wrote about the revisioning of occupation, uh, you characterized it, uh, well, you said it involves a gendering of nationalization. Can you tell listeners a bit about what you mean by that? Yes. Well, the, in the latter part of the essay, I, I talk about what happens to, to occupation over the course of the 1950s. One of the things I, I try to do in the essay is, is to show just how, how difficult, obviously, it was to, to transform Americans' attitudes towards occupation as the war is, is still drawing to an end and in the immediate moment when the post-war occupations are, are first set in place. And, and I'm keen not to suggest that one novel, of course, at a stroke, rewrites American attitudes and that everyone comes to believe that, that, that the occupations are these glowing examples of, of American virtue and generosity in motion. Because counterintuitively, perhaps, if, if, we, if we had bought the analogy in 2003 and we were sort of um, filled with a sense that the occupations of Germany and Japan were, of course, these immediately miraculous makeovers. What we see in the late 1940s, in fact, is that there's a tremendous emphasis in, in journalistic coverage of those occupations, of, of the more venal and, and sordid elements of them. And it's not really until the 1950s that attitudes start to change. 
And one of the things that I, I point to towards the end of the essay is, is how that change occurs and, and what gives rise to it. And one of the things that we see in, in the 1950s is the way in which Germany and Japan become reimagined as partners in, in a shared venture of, of remaking and, and refashioning. And, and part and parcel of that process is the way in which Germany and Japan are, are reimagined as pleasingly feminine, accommodating partners in, in a shared post-war democratizing mission. And that ideas about gender, ideas about sexuality, the eligibility of, of Germans and Japanese, uh, both individually as, as a suitable post-war brides, if, if you will, for, for American GIs, but, but more metaphorically as, as appropriate national partners for the United States in, in post-war geopolitics is, is a very, very striking and, and dominant motif. Now, I'm not the first by any means to have pointed this out. Nako Shibusawa and Petra Goda, amongst others, have, have pointed out the ways in which Japan and Germany, respectively, were, were sort of gendered in this post-war geopolitical U-turn that the United States undertakes as, as the former Axis foes become the most ardent and reliable of, of Cold War partners. But it is very striking. And, and along with this, um, I, I point to the way in which Abel Ferdano is, is revisited in the 1950s, along with the way in which the occupations of, of Germany and Japan are revisited in the 1950s in popular culture as sites for humor, for romance, as places of, of fun and frivolity, a very far cry from the way in which Sicily in 1943 or Okinawa in 1945 were sort of steeped in blood um, and littered with rubble, with desperation in the very early days of the occupations. So I, I return to the way in which television now makes Abel Fredano into this um, very lightweight, frothy, romantic comedy with music. Abel Fredano sounds like a song that the angels sing, the lyric goes. And Major Joplo is in, in sort of full-fledged romance with the blonde belle of Adano and all the rest of it. And this, this is part of a larger process of, of sort of jollifying both the Pacific War and, and the war in Europe and, and finding them these pleasing um, stirrings of, of romance, of reconciliation, which seems to, to tie into a trope that we found after earlier wars, that the romance of reconciliation after the Civil War too, with the, the sort of phenomenon of, of Southern Bells becoming eligible brides for, for Yankees and so on. That's fascinating. Thank you. Um, and let me finally ask you, you referred to this earlier uh, in, our, in our conversation, um, that this article is part of a larger project that you're working on. Can you tell us more about this larger project? I would be glad to do that. Well, as I have been continuing to work on this, I, I envisioned the, the book that I am almost about to write as, as a book that will be called The Good Occupation. And, and I want to do something in that book not so dissimilar from, from what Fred Tuggle, who of course I, I'm nodding to with that title, did for The Good War. This won't be an, an oral history, but in the book I, I draw on 
very extensive research that I'm, I'm wrapping up at this point in the letters and diaries of, of men and where I can find them also of women who were part of the occupying armies after World War II. And I'm trying to reconstruct the great variety of ways in which they made sense of what the work of occupation actually was and struggled to come to terms with it or, or gladly embraced what they understood the post-war mission to be in, in a whole variety of, of different ways. So when I, I first started thinking about the book, I had imagined that the book might draw much more heavily on cultural sources. So as an extended version, if you like, of, of the, the essay that the journal was about to publish. And although I, I now think that, of course, the book will still draw on Hollywood movies and novels and, and works of the kind that I'm, I'm familiar with dealing with, I've really spent the last few years digging very extensively into archives at places like the Army's Military History Institute at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and wherever I can, I can find deposits of, of papers which allow me to try to, to see how ordinary men and women where I can of, of of enlisted status, so not so much the, the MacArthur's of the occupations, but how ordinary men and women, often barely out of their teens, made sense of what it meant to occupy power. And I am endlessly impressed and delighted that in almost every diary or set of, of letters that I read, there is what I call a, a drop-a-low moment, because it's, it's almost always the case that in some letter home, um, or sometimes you even find the letters that, that girlfriends and wives are writing to their loved ones, they refer to and have an exchange about a Balfredano. And in the great majority of, of cases, they, they refer very favorably to a Balfredano and, and, and regard Chopolo as a model for what they might be doing. And so uh, if I were to rewrite the essay now, I could come up with yet more examples of, of how tremendously influential a novel this was, not, not just for, for the home front, but for men who were taking it and, and, and really did regard it as a, a talisman of the good occupation. But but now we, uh, readers of the article and listeners to the podcast, Susan, get to look forward to reading about all this in your book, which will be well, wonderful. I, I, now I just have to write it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we've been talking today with Susan Carruthers, who is professor of history at Rutgers University, Newark, and the author of Produce More Joppolos, John Hersey's A Bell for Adano and the making of the good occupation, which will appear in the March 2014 issue of the Journal of American History. Susan, thank you so much for this wonderful podcast. Well, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org. In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities eBook Library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held every spring. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in June for our next episode. 
If you have any questions or comments, please email us at jahcast at oah.org. Thank you.